0: tell you a little bit about how this Shi'or uh, came about. It actually started, the core of it started when we did a Yomi Yun with the Avi Schaefer fund that was about the legacy of Martin Luther King or was connected to the legacy of Martin Luther King. It was about racial justice. Um, and I just went on a tear of learning through all of Martin Luther, as many as I could of his speeches and specifically his dress show, you know, where he's really doing this like important. Biblical exegesis to get his social justice um, agenda really well grounded in his tradition, um, and then once I had the material, I've I've been kind of you know putting it in different uh, putting it in different settings because I think it's so valuable, and I was thinking especially this week where the mornings are all about. Uh, kind of a Jewish lens of superiority, of not really wanting to interact with our non-Jewish neighbors. I thought that like having a shear that has a nice Martin Luther King component would be a nice tikkun, a nice compensation for that. Because in fact, there is a lot of wisdom um, and a lot of Torah wisdom that we can actually gain from um, our non-Jewish neighbors. Um, we are going to be using his position as like any other um, like sort of legitimate philosophical approach to this question. Um, and hopefully that will be welcome. But we are going to start with the very beginning. We're going to start with Sefer Brashit and actually like Genesis itself. Um, and we are going to be looking at these first two psukim from Brashit Aleph, the first chapter of anything. Okay, Genesis chapter one. Um, and you have two psukim here. Pasuk Aleph, verse 11, versus verse 12, okay? And we're going to read them, and you are going to tell me what the difference is between these two verses. And it's quite possible that I bolded it so that it would be easier for you to see uh, what the difference is. Okay. Okay. Elohim, God said, Tacheh Ha'aretz Desha, of Mazria Zera, Eit peri oseh peri know. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees that bear fruit of every kind on earth, with the seed in it, and so it was. Right, so in the first verse, in verse 11, we have God's instruction to the earth, I want you to produce this kind of vegetation, I want you to produce some grass, and I want you to produce some trees. And then we have verse 12, which is, The earth is going to do what God commanded it. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in it of every kind. And God saw that it was good. So we have the instruction, and then we have the fulfillment. What is wrong with the picture of the fulfillment? What did God ask for, as opposed to what did the earth actually produce? Yes, Richard. The is that
1: brought forth fruit, not just the fruit
0: Well, just well, let's just let's just zero in. You're you're already you're already interpreting. Okay, we're zeroing in on the bolded part. God said, "I want fruit trees that bear fruit," and the earth produced trees bearing fruit. Now. You might say to yourself, with a non-rabbinic lens, uh, the earth did exactly what God instructed it. First of all, a fruit tree is a tree that bears fruit. That's the first thing that you would say, I don't really understand why you're making so much hay about this. The second is that since when would the earth disobey God? So even like philosophically, logically, it seems like God said this should happen. It's probably going to happen. And the last piece, and this is the real clincher, it says in both verses, first it says, hi and it was so, yeah. and then God saw it, and it was good. It was good. Yeah. Okay, so the, the evidence for there being a problem is a lot weaker than the evidence for that this is not a problem. Right. Um, we are going to spend the next couple of minutes really like digging our teeth into like why this is a problem and what a big problem it was and what a tragedy and all the things that came. And I just want you to know that that is a midrash. <laughs> okay, that is a, that is a path that we are going down that the literal text is fine. God said, can I serve fruit trees? And the earth said, sure. Okay, that's the literal <laughs> understanding. But now we're going to get into this huge midrashic problem of are they fruit trees that produce fruit or are they trees that produce fruit? That's a huge midrashic <laughs> problem. Okay. Um, so we're going into midrash, Breshit Rabbah. And the question that the Midrash is, is asking, I didn't give it to you on the sheet, I was trying to save paper, which didn't work, um, is when you look at the story, what you have is a certain... I don't need these. You Can you pass the these sense around sense. to other okay, people so who need them? Yeah. Second. I mean, I had yeah. a... I just thought you would want them. No, thank you. you. Um, okay. <laughs> so we have the characters of... The first sin, we've got Adam, we've got Eve, we've got the snake. That's those are the people that are sort of the personages that are involved in the first sin. But then, when you look at the consequences of the sin, when God is meeting out punishment, God also curses the earth, right? God says to Adam, the earth is going to be cursed because of you. And so the Midrash asks this question. Many a child has asked. That's not fair. If Adam sins, Adam should be punished. If Chava sins, Chava should be punished. If this was all of the snake's idea, the snake should be punished. Nevach, what did the earth do? Why is the earth being punished? Okay? Now, pshat understanding why is the earth being punished What is this suspensible silence? Yeah? The one person
1: who is supposed to keep it defiled.
0: Good, right? The, the, Earth is being, <coughs> the Earth is being punished because Adam's being punished. Right. What it means for the Earth to be cursed is that it's more difficult for Adam to get food out of it. Right. The Earth does not have feelings. The Earth does not have free will. So what it means to say that you're cursing the earth, what you mean is, Adam, your curse is going to take place here. Okay, that's the literal understanding of what's going on with the curse. But the Midrash constructs this court case, right, where it actually says three people went in to be tried and four people came out with a punishment. And what did the earth do that it was cursed? Okay, that's the question. And here, um, Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Shimon, has an answer. He says that the earth she she violated the commandment what was the commandment well god said to the earth let the earth put forth vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees that bear fruit of every kind etc and what does that mean just as the fruit was edible so too the wood or the bark was edible so in pasuk 11 God says, I want fruit trees that make fruit. So you've got your fruit tree, your bark is fruit, and it makes fruit. So, you know, basically, originally everything was supposed to be broccoli, right? You can eat it the whole way through. You have fruit trees. It's made of fruit that produces fruit. That's what God meant when he said, puri peri, sat puri. But she did not do so. Rather, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees bearing fruit with a seed in it of every kind, etc. And we have an eighth of sapri. The fruit was edible, but the wood was not edible. Let's just pause here. Rabbi Hudur, Rabbi Shimon, says we have this really serious issue, and now the earth is being punished for it. Originally, everything was supposed to be fruit the whole way through, and now I've got this bark situation and that was not part of the original plan and that's why the earth is being cursed. Okay. Now here's the question that you need to answer. <coughs> why is that so bad? Or more accurately, why is my like, vision of a perfect world, right, that even Eden doesn't match up to that vision of a perfect world, why is that a fruit tree that bears fruit? Like, what does that symbolize, that even the bark is edible?
2: Yes? You don't have to work very hard to be nourished. I mean, everything is there for you to take, whereas if you've got bark that you can't eat, you can eat the fruit, but you're going to have to find uh, other sources of food to, uh, to nourish yourself.
1: Fruit may not
0: be enough. Okay, good. So Diana saying a few important things. One you're saying is, well, the more fruit there is, the more food there is. We don't eat bark. So when, I, when the tree disobeyed and only produced the fruit part that was fruit, I basically just lost 85 90% of the edible components of this tree. Right? But you also said something that I think is very important about the difficulty for the human being. When I finish harvesting my fruit, then I have to like wait a while to get more fruit. And that's really difficult for human beings. Right? We do not like to wait. Right? And there's something that the earth has done in making the tree wood that makes it harder for human beings to get sustenance. And what I really like about that second lens is that that actually matches really well what the curse is that the, that the earth gets. That God says to the earth, you are going to be growing thorns now. It's actually going to be a lot harder for Adam to get fruit out of the earth. It's almost like it's a continuation. I had wanted, God said, I had wanted everything to be fruity, everything I wanted it to be edible. You decided that you wanted to have some bark. Now what you are going to do is continue down your bad path. I'm going to curse you to do more of what you innovated, which is to bring up brambles and all sorts of things that make human life difficult. Great, beautiful. Why um, else, yes?
2: It, it has implications
3: in, I think, in terms of choices that humans make about sustenance going forward, right? If you eat all the fruit now, then you won't have any for
1: later, in part because it's more difficult, and, it, and there's, a, there's a time-based component before it, would, it will be regenerated.
0: OK, and is that bad or good?
1: That's,
3: um, it, it, it's bad from the perfection of a, of a ghani Dan perspective. It may be good in terms of allowing us to move forward, but that's, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that out. Okay,
0: good, good. Yes, so? It does
3: seem like there could be a problem because if the fruit trees were also, wood was also fruit, you might eat the whole tree and then you would never have anything.
0: Okay, good. Right, so Diane's done a really good job of explaining why, from a human perspective, I might think that I want the tree to be entirely edible. But you're suggesting a rationale for why the Earth might have disobeyed. Because the Earth is in it for the long haul, and the Earth sees, well, wait a minute. How am I going to regenerate this tree if the entire thing is fruit? I know human beings. They're not going to just eat the fruit part and let me regenerate. They're going to eat me all the way to the core, and then they're not going to have any fruit left. So <laughs> I am doing one better by keeping a system for, for regenerating fruit for humanity. That is That is definitely... The mindset set of the earth when it um, disobeys the command. Yes. What happened to the seed? What happened to the seed? have the seeds. So you're saying even without the wood, I would still be able to have a process of regeneration from the seed. Okay. Good argument. Why do I keep, let's keep on going. Why is it that, the, that I would want the tree to be entirely fruit? Like what's in it for me? Yes.
2: Um, I can't quite formulate this but something about like is, it, is is it would it be better not to have like two mixed parts of the plant like here's the part you can eat and here's the part you can't eat that it might cause confusion or extra work or some sort of sense of categories that, that people aren't comfortable with
0: good right there's something complicated about mm-hmm. it yeah and human beings have to learn how to eat Instead of just, and that is actually like how children learn. They just put stuff in their mouth, right? They're learning what's okay and what's not okay. They're learning about their environment by putting things in their mouth. And you could have had a world where that was not unsafe, right? You could just put everything in your mouth, and you didn't have to go through a sorting and a differentiation. Everything was good, and I don't need to learn anything about it, right? And what's also really important is, What's the result of eating from the tree? You have a knowledge of good and evil. Maybe before this happened, there was no good and evil. There was just good. I didn't need a differentiating sense because everything was edible, everything was accessible, everything was good. And I end up as a human being getting that ability to distinguish. But maybe in an ideal world, I wouldn't have it because I wouldn't need it. Yeah. Yes. I'm wondering why you're using the word good. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I don't
3: see an inherent value to put on something edible and something inedible. Why? is one good and one not good. And same with before they ate. There wasn't only good. There was true and untrue.
0: Okay. So
3: I don't know if I like...
0: Good. So I will tell... I, I, am, I am acknowledging your objection and we will see some sources that reflect your objection. I will tell you why I'm using the term good, because I associate good and evil with punishment, and in this midrash, this is something that the earth is being punished for. So I might not be right in that, but that's where it comes from. Okay, yeah, Eden. What
3: about the wood?
0: What about the wood? Say more. I,
3: what just is that? Uh, shall, I mean, I don't you know the intense or whatever, but the wood is valuable.
0: Okay, good. Even if you can't eat it,
3: it's certainly valuable for, for if not, if just to burn a fire from it or build shelter.
0: Okay, we will also see your perspective reflected in a text, but I just want to make sure that we fully explore what the value is of the fruit and the tree being similar before we go and say, here's why it's not good. Okay, yeah, Michael. What does
1: Midrash address, the um, told?
0: Doesn't. Yes. Very easy way to uh, weasel out of a problem and just ignore it. Classic. What day was this? What day was what? Uh, when this was? Well, hu- well, human beings are sinning in the second and third chapters. So this, the, the instruction is happening in the first chapter, and the life that is being lived as a result is happening later. At least on the sixth day. We might still be in the sixth day. Okay. Yes. I'm wondering,
2: just in, the, in God's intent, what would the difference be between the fruit? Like, why would you need fruit at all if the tree was fruit in and of itself? What would be the purpose of having additional right. parrot grow from
0: yeah. the tree? I mean, it seems like all it would be <clears throat> would be more volume that the reason why God wants there to be trees with fruit is because God wants more fruit, like Diane's original perspective. But, yeah, I think we're doing a good... Does anybody have anything to say positive before we continue to, to break this apart? Okay, good. Um, let's continue in the Midrash. Rabbi Pinchas does not like Rabbi Huda, the son of Rabbi Shimon's perspective. He says... She even added on to the command. She, meaning the earth, does God want better. It's not that she disobeys. She does better. She was happy to do the will of her creator. Trees bearing fruit, even the shade trees, even Ilan Esrak, Asu even shade trees produced fruit. Okay. Rabbi Pinchas and Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Shimon, have one thing definitely in common. Well, they have two things in common. The first thing they have in common is they agree that this is a serious problem between Pasuk Yud Aleph and Pasuk Yud Ben that needs to be addressed, right? You can imagine that Rabbi Pinchas could have said, uh, I don't like your question, it's stupid. But instead he says, no, 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 no. I, I agree with you that there's a distinction here, but I need to find a different meaning with it. All right, and another thing that Rabbi Pinchas has in common with Rabbi of Rabbi Shimon, is that he is also pro-fruit, Solidly pro fruit because what does he say? The earth did. He took shade trees and they produced fruit. Okay? So essentially, there's like, there's two worlds. Rabbi the Rabbi Shimon has a world, we call it broccoli world. And the world that Rabbi Pinchas is inhabiting is lumber world. Right, what they each have is a different default. Rabbi Huda Rabbi Shimon's default is everything was supposed to be edible and Rabbi Pinchas' default was there were trees where there was nothing edible. And they both agree that what the earth ended up producing was what we think of as a (coughs) tree that has fruit in it. That looks like a tree, right? (laughs) Okay, good. So they both agree on this end result. And they both agree that more fruit is better. But Rabbi Pinchas doesn't have this illusion of there being a world where everything is all fruity. What he's done is he's created that in the Garden of Eden, the trees were different than the trees are now. This is not super important, so if you don't get it, it's fine, but I'm going to explain it anyway because it's there. Essentially, there's a timeline where Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Shimon thinks there's an Eden that's better than Eden, which is what God had planned, and then Eden is a fallen version of what God had intended, and now we are living in a world, in a nature that is just like Eden's nature our trees look just like the trees that were in Eden. What Rabbi Pinchas is saying is the ideal world right, is Eden, and then the the world that we're experiencing is not Eden. Because in Eden, every single tree produced fruit, and we're living in a world where we have shade trees, and some trees are only useful for firewood or for lumber. If you didn't get that, no problem. If you did get that, Extra fruit. Okay.
2: So is that essentially the problem?
0: Um, Is what essentially the problem?
2: That all the trees are not bearing
0: fruit. I think the problem that both Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Pinchas are dealing with is they want to see there being a shift, but they don't agree on what the shift is and they don't agree on when it happened. Yeah. Yes?
3: Are we assuming that all
2: the fruit produce,
0: is edible? We exactly. are assuming that. We are. Okay. Yes.
3: Because they say fruit bearing trees or trees bearing fruit, but they don't say in everything that only in one part that the fruit was edible. So there mm-hmm. could be poisonous fruit or mm-hmm. fruit mm-hmm. that, you know, like I'm picking those little green berries on fruit. Uh-huh. They're still
2: considered fruit, but they're
0: not you know, edible. That's interesting. That's interesting. In verse twenty-nine, The
1: fruit is given to humans.
0: Right, well, that's interesting. Um, Mandy, and then we're going to move on to the next yeah, text. Yes.
1: Her question it's a Hidrash,
0: so. Well, it's your choice to ask it, and it's <laughs> my choice to answer it.
3: Okay. My, my kind of plain reading of the, the two Sukim so is that the one, it's like a temporal difference, not so
2: much that they're different kind of trees, but one is that what is trees that bear fruit, but they are not actually at this point in time bearing fruit. And
0: the other is they
3: are delivered to the world already mm-hmm. in maturity.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's a very uh, rabbinically consistent way of reading these texts, because we may be familiar with the age-old question of which came first, the chicken or the egg. The rabbis have already answered that question. The answer is the chicken. Like, they, they've asked that question, and they've answered it, and the answer is chicken. So you might, you might be right that there's a... That what it means to say it's an 8th Osepriz, that's a full-grown 8th that produces this fruit because, as we know from other rabbinic conversations, of course, everything is created in its mature stage. Good. Okay. You're right that it wasn't relevant to the Midrash, but it was interesting anyway. Okay. So now we're going to this next Midrash, the Sifra, and I want you to notice the way in which it is a mirror of the previous. We're in the third box um, I think you guys might have it on a different page. Okay. Minayan. From where do we know? Whenever you have the question Minayan, we're looking for a scriptural support. I'm looking for a pasuk. How do I know that in the future the wood will be edible? The verse teaches fruit tree. If this comes to teach that it produces a fruit, the verse already says producing fruit. If so, why does it say fruit tree? Rather, just as the fruit is edible, so too the wood will be edible. Mm. Okay, so the Sifra is just saying, "Yeah, there was an ideal. Well, we're not in it. It's coming, mm-hmm. right?" But they agree on what the ideal is. But just is a game over, or is our game just beginning? Okay, and even the next strain. And from where do we know that in the future even shade trees will produce fruit? The verse teaches and the tree of the field will give its fruit. Okay? Eight sasadeh, the field tree, will give, piryot will give its fruit. So there's something I think like very beautiful and very satisfying about the sifra in conversation with the Midrash and Breshi Rabbah, which is that we all know that we're living in a fallen time and maybe our language for talking about that is less fruit. And the Midrash and the sifra says, but I'm not willing to stop there. Right? I want to go and talk about what's going to be in the future. That's what's interesting to me. What I can hope for is more interesting to me than what I've lost. Um, and we'll see that um, we're going to spend some time studying Rev. Cook. He, his perspective on this is you've got to put both of those midrashim together. You have to both understand that you've lost something and understand that you can gain it back. Okay. Um. I am going to ask Margaret to read this of Rabbanel, because I think you'll be happy with it.
3: The Rambam already asked, how could God have not commanded the creation of barren trees? For he only mentioned fruit trees that bear fruit, and Rabbanu Nissim struggled to answer it.
0: So let's just pause here. right? All of these Midrashim are talking about how great it is to have fruit trees, and that God commanded fruit trees, fruit trees, fruit trees, fruit trees, and we're looking around, there's plenty of trees that aren't fruit trees. So where did God say cedar tree? Where did God say birch? Where did God say composite wood that you make IKEA furniture? <laughs> not there,
3: right? So where
0: did these shade trees come from? Continue. Oh, and he says, Rabino Nisim, he tried, but he did a bad job. OK, continue.
3: But in my opinion, this question does not have any substance. And because there is no tree in the world that does not produce fruit, even barren trees have fruit and that is the gallnut. Rather, there are some trees that have edible fruit, and there are some whose fruit is not edible, but it is good and useful for other things,
0: and for medicines.
3: But in any event, every tree has a fruit.
0: Good. Right, so I hope that some of you find this satisfying. The Ravenel says, this is a ridiculous question. There's no such thing as a useless tree. Right, and, and a fruit is, and I think this goes to your question, fruit kind of stands in for usability <laughs> even if it doesn't have apples. It has gall nuts. And even if it doesn't have gallnuts, you could use you know, an aspirin tree to bring down a fever. Nobody's going to like yum, yum, yum on aspirin. But it's actually very useful. Does
2: this is only address the second part, the shade tree issue?
0: What this is addressing is, Bravenel notices that there's a blind spot that these midrashim are so invested in the producing, that they're trees that produce fruit, where if God only commanded fruit trees that produce fruit, where the heck did all these other trees come from? And so Ravanel says, uh, they're all fruit trees. There's no such thing as a tree that's not a fruit tree. Okay, um, does anybody here know what a gall nut is? No. i heard of it. I've heard of it, okay. Partial credit. So, a gallnut, this is such a good example for two reasons. The first reason is that it's something that looks like a fruit but is actually not a fruit. Um, a gallnut is essentially is produced by when a, like a wasp gets into a tree. That's supposed to be an arrow that looks like a wasp. I think I did a very bad job. Now it has wings. Okay, this is a tree. The wasp flies into the tree and irritates the bark. And then the protrusion that comes from that irritation is the gall nut. Okay. Oh yeah, of course, the gall nut. And gallnuts have a very, very important um, Torah function. When you are making ink for a safer Torah, gallnut is one of the components to the ink. It is what allows the ink to be both sticky and removable. It's actually a very important quality because when you have Torah ink you can scrape it off the Torah and it won't leave any mark but it's very strongly adhesive. That is like a very unique quality that this ink has. This, this is how you're able to fix Sifre Torah. You can actually just scrape off and redo and it's also how Sifre Torah become Pasul because things just kind <coughs> of disappear um, from the Safer Torah. So what the Abrahamic is saying by using this example, the medicine example is pretty good, but the gallnut example is amazing because he says, "Yeah, you think uh, you think there are trees that don't produce fruit? Every tree could produce a gallnut, and you know what you need a gallnut for? Writing the Torah. How dare you say, right, that this tree has no function, that this tree can't produce fruit? You can write a Torah. Is that fruit enough for you? Wow. Right? It's a very, um, very strong example, and it's very subtle." Right, you could read it as just being sweet, but actually he's, he's really driving home his point with those examples. Medicine and Torah, you can't live without these things. It's not just decorative. Okay, decorative I know is a loaded term from this morning. I'll try not to use it again. Um, okay, any uh, other comments or questions about this of before we move on a little bit? Um, yes, Mandy. one is that
2: perhaps
0: not every tree produces a walnut. Like... Well, every tree can, because it's it's an allergic reaction so it's actually it's not like in the genetic of a tree genetic it's not in the DNA of a tree that it's going to produce a gallnut it's in a, it's an environmental um, occurrence yeah reaction yes Leah
1: is the brother law also still worried that maybe the earth uh, otherwise if this wasn't true would have been really not listening to God is that still alive at this point for him Meaning, like is that also why he wants to prove that because then that would be even more of like a transgression
0: by the earth. Yeah, so, yeah. so the Abravanel does consider himself to be a Pashtan. He's concerned with the literal meaning yeah. of the text. He's a very long-winded way of getting to the literal meaning of the text. Um, if, you've ever, if you've never studied the Abravanel, it is a, um, an adventure. <coughs> Basically, what he does is he'll stack up 15 questions, and then he'll give you one long, 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 long answer. I think he is probably word for word like the longest commentator on the Torah and it's amazing that he gets all that length from trying to get you mostly to the pshat. Um, but I, I think that that's really what's driving him is there's an absence here that the Midrash is highlighting because God's instructing about fruit trees but my world doesn't match that. Yeah. Jenna, is that a hand or you're just preening? Yeah, Michael. Can
1: them address <laughs> the question that Whereas God commands the waters to bring forth and the, the land to bring forth later on, this is the only place God's command has ever actually invaded. Aha!
0: huh
1: Like God commands the water, but then God makes. But here God commands this, uh, <laughs> brings the earth to bring forth and the earth does it.
0: I don't, like, know the text well enough to respond to that question. That
1: would be interesting to say, well, at least yeah. None of the other ones yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I I do think there's a way in which, at least Rabbi Pinchas is trying to cast the earth here as a hero, um, which I'm very sympathetic towards. Um, Okay. Here's what we are going to do now. We are at Martin Luther King. The first text is the hardest and the most loaded text. Um, So what I want you to do is just turn to the person next to you and just try to get through and have like a real core understanding of what's happening and where do we go from here, okay? Let's take the next uh, seven minutes or so. Okay, Um, I think that when you read through a speech, you really understand how much in your life must be flowing right past you without your understanding it. This was designed for someone to just be able to say to you, and you understand it, and you move on. When you read through it, I actually don't understand what he means by love and power being anemic. Like none of this actually—it's all very moving, but it takes a while to really <clears throat> penetrate um, what it is that he is trying to say. Um, I think that he's really saying four things in this one paragraph. Um, the first move that he has is when he talks about the need for love to have. Power and the need for power to have love, right? And the first half of this equation was that love without power is anemic, right? That it's kind of, yeah, what did, what did you guys think that meant? What does he mean by that? That love without power is anemic. I just, if you could raise your hands, I would know who's talking. Yeah, Jen. You can't
2: make anything happen in the
0: Okay, so if you want love to be able to be productive, um, there needs to be some energy, there needs to be some power that comes to the love. Yes, Arthur. I I think he's talking
2: here, I think he's talking to, in a a way, in response to a statement of Jesus that he doesn't ever quote, which is the statement, the thing that I've said to you is to love one another.
0: Yes, he does quote that.
2: Okay, so, you know, and, and, and the way that is commonly understood is... All that is necessary to achieve a better world is to love one another. And what King is saying is that isn't enough. That won't get you anywhere. It's sentimental. So it, it feels good,
3: but it does not accomplish anything.
0: Okay, good. And I think that the, the continued use of the term sentimental in the pejorative sense is exactly right. right? That's exactly what he means what does it do for me that you love me? Right? If love is supposed to be between people and not inside an individual person, there needs to be some oneness. There needs to be some substance to that love. That love needs to inspire you. That love needs to obligate you. That love needs to exist in a real way. And... So when he says that love without power is anemic, what he means is exactly that sentiment. Don't, don't tell me that you have this feeling. <clears throat> what does that feeling mean? What does that feeling require? What does that feeling look like when it really exists? Right? So if I'm, um, if I'm your parent and I say to you, I really love you, And every morning I wake up and I say I love you but I don't feed you when you're in trouble I'm not there for you Um, I totally neglectful of your needs and I feel a lot of love for you and I and I tell you all the time that I love you that's not love right that's neglect and and you the parent might feel the love but if the child doesn't receive the benefits that that love is supposed to generate, the child rightfully will say back to the parent, no, you don't. You can say you love me, but you don't love me. Because I know what love is, I know what love looks like, I know what love does, and your love looks like garbage and does nothing. Yeah, David, you want to push back on this? You have that look. <laughs> so either anemia
1: is okay, sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So take this person who is incurable disease. All I can give that person is love. I have no power to cure the
0: disease. You do not need to have the power to to cure that disease. right? But let's say you have a friend who's really ill, and you say to yourself, I'm really concerned about this friend who's really ill. I really love them. But you never visit your friend, and you never tell your friend that you care about them. I think that's the kind of anemic love that he is trying to move away from, where it's about you, and it's not constructive or generative
1: but that's not power. Power and action are not the that's same because I don't create justice by just showing affection to this so. point, No, but, but we're not talking about justice. In the case of healing them, the power... I
0: mean... I'm sorry, I'm stuck. Um, you're heading in the right direction. I, I think that you're right that the more important component of this for him is that power without love is destructive, but I think that what he wants you to start looking at love as is as like a mode through which you do things and a lens through which you interact as opposed to a feeling that you have inside that makes you feel ushy-gushy. So that's a fair critique and I think that's where I want to push it. Yeah, Toby. I think one way to look at it is the difference between love is a noun and love is a verb. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's love a good Christian, a uh a Yeah, mm-hmm. good, good, mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. With a hand here, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I would just see this, I mean, it's, it's 67 when this was written, when this is spoken. So that's the time the argument he's having is with, like, the Black Power Movement, who's critiquing him or saying as being the gushy, just all your, not, all your love and preaching is not getting it. It's gotten it's, it's as far as it's going to go. So he's saying, no, I know, my love is not, the anemic love, I know that love by itself is anemic, but that's not me. On violence is love with power behind it.
0: Good, that's, good, that's good, happens. thank you. That's very helpful. This will be our last comment on this question. I think
2: to me, the important thing is is that things that seem to be polar opposites actually need to be integrated in order to be effective. It's not, you know, I'm sort of resisting the idea of balancing uh-huh. and saying more it's about one, and I think it's supported in the words he uses, he's talking about one effectuating the other and vice-versa simultaneously, and that that's ultimately what truth is.
0: Okay, beautiful. Right, there's a kind of integration that they strengthen each other in different ways and they need each other, um, right? And this very like basic equation. That you, get, you add your power to your love, you mix them together, and you want to act politically in the world, that's going to get you to nonviolence. Nonviolence is his very powerful love. OK? Um, and the next like uh, argument that he makes is that nonviolence is uniquely potent and uniquely effective. Um, this is where he's in a little bit of a machloket and a little bit of a tension with the Panthers, um, and possibly with history. right? Like, he's been very inspired by Gandhi, and he's like, this is totally effective. Um, I would say that this is not, if his entire argument and his entire philosophy totally depended on nonviolence being the most potent and the most effective, I'm not sure we would all be, you know, sitting here today, like, really thinking of him as a hero, because there are plenty of times when, I'll just, like, when nonviolence isn't effective, right? So his claim that it's uniquely potent or uniquely effective, I think, is true sometimes, Um, and not necessarily true all the time. So I don't want to spend too much time arguing about this point because to a certain degree it's what's least interesting and at the same time most controversial. Okay. I don't think he says it's equally potent. He says it's the most potent. It's the most potent. Okay. Uh, Fine. I'll I'll, I'll accept that. So I won't say that it's the most potent and I don't want to argue about that. Okay, good. Um, the third piece, right, is that the goal is truth and brotherhood, right? This is, I think, where he really is speaking to his, um, you know, co-like race groups who are trying these different strategies. There's the group that's trying the legal, there's a group that's trying the violence, and then there's him who's trying this non-violent protest, Right? What he's saying is I don't only want the right to do X, Y, or Z thing. I might be able to fight my way into the right to sit where I want to on the bus or not be discriminated in housing. Like, I could get individual wins, individual gains. I could do that through violent means. But I'm only interested... In those individual gains because I want to be in brotherhood I want to be fully human right I want to live in a world of truth and togetherness so getting the concrete win of you can vote or getting the concrete win of you can work here and you can be paid I could get that through violence but I can't get what I actually want, which those things are byproducts of through violence, because violence is, goodbye, (laughs) Marker, violence is like totally counter to truth and brotherhood. So I might be winning these battles, but as I'm doing it, I'm losing the war. Because my war is love, right, togetherness, unity, and I'm winning, I'm vanquishing my enemies but I'm not joining with them in a united goal of recognizing each other's humanity. That's not happening. Okay, that is, um, I think, probably for him, like, the most important part of this argument. Um, and he sort of ends with this, I mean, this isn't the end. The passage that I selected for you and excerpted ends with... Um, that I'm going to stick to love because it's the greatest good and it's the answer to all of humanity's problems. I'm not really sure what that means, um, but... Not sure it's true. Not sure it's true. I'm willing to accept that. That's also not the case. Um, but I think that one of the reasons why he adds this, and we'll see that in the two paragraphs that we're about to read, is that if I'm acting violently the act that I'm doing in and of itself I know is a problem. If I'm acting with love, I know that the act that I'm doing in and of itself is good. So if you were to ask me, what's the way to generate the most good in the world, and you're not talking to me about my specific aims, I will say love and nonviolence. Like, that will be my answer. (laughs) So if you strip away the political, and you just exist in the moral, and you say, like, you know... Reverend King, you're my pastor. I want to know how I should be in the world. And I'm a white person with tons of power, right? He would still say to you, well, the answer to all of humanity's problems is that you should be good, right? Is that you should be loving. And that's really, you can get rid of everything else that I'm saying, but you can't argue that the content of what I want you to do is something that's fundamentally good. Okay. Now what I want us to do is get back to our trees and our fruit, because something has to do with the other. Okay, okay.
1: All
0: right. Um, I'm going to cold call uh, Sin- Sydney. You want to read? We're at the American Dream. Commencement address at Lincoln University on June 6, 1961.
2: I believe, more than ever before, in the power of nonviolent resistance. It has a moral aspect tied to it. It makes it possible for the individual to achieve moral end through moral means. And this is where nonviolent resistance breaks with communism and with all those systems which argue that the end justifies the means. Because we realize that the end is existing in the means. In the long run of history, destructive means cannot bring about destructive ends.
0: Okay, keep on reading. You've got a lot of appreciative ums. You're doing a good job.
2: Christmas Sermon on Peace, delivered at the Ebenezer Baptist Church on December 24, 1967. Now let me say, secondly, that if we are to have peace in the world, men and nations must embrace the nonviolent affirmation that ends and means must go here. But we will never have peace in the world until men everywhere recognize that ends are not cut off, for right? because the means represent the ideal in the making and the end in process, and ultimately you can't reach good ends through evil means because the means represent the seed
0: and the end represents the tree. Okay, okay, good. More appreciative.
3: uh.
0: There's a tree. Now I feel like I can relax. Okay. Right, so these two snippets um, are moving us to not only our image of the tree and the seed and the fruit, but also getting us to what I think is a really core component that he doesn't address here, which is, I'm not really sure that you can divide so cleanly between ends and means. Okay? When he talks about the ends being pre existent in the means and the means be, right, the easiest way to say that is how do you know what's ends and what's means? Mm-hmm. Um, and when he talks about the seed, right, being planted and then it can only generate, right, what is inside of it, the tree that's going to grow from it and will eventually produce more seeds. You have to look at the broader run of this. You're going to fight now, and you're going to win. In a decade, someone's going to fight you, and they're going to win. In another two decades, someone's going to fight them, and they're going to win. So you might have achieved your peaceful ends, but that is inherently temporary, because you are, right, this goes back to what he was saying before about murder does not end murder. Murder is just more murder, right? So if you continue to have this system of vanquishing, instead of replacing the system of vanquishing with a system of cooperation, with a system of brotherhood and unity and love and affection and all of those things, your ends aren't even going to be your ends. They're going to look like your ends, but really they are just going to keep on perpetuating the means. Okay. Okay. Um, any thoughts about this? So, so yes. So ultimately the love the fruit?
2: Yes. The love yes. is the fruit, okay, and the power. Great.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: the
0: the goal, is. right, he says the goal is, you're right, unity, brotherhood, truth. That's the goal, that's the fruit. Right? If the seed that I plant to get that is violence, I'm going to get a tree and maybe even the tree or the fruit is going to be brotherhood and unity, but the new seed that's going to go back into the ground, that's just violence again. Right? You're stuck in this cycle. Right? And I think that the The appreciation of cyclicality, right, is also something that he's gotten from Gandhi, right? It's not just the nonviolence. It's that life is a cycle unless you break it, right? He's also getting that from Gandhi. Um, Yeah, Sydney. Um, So there's,
2: like, a fun philosophical thought experiment that I really like, that I I think brings out um, King's point really well, so... There's a case um, where there's a whole bunch of miners that are in this cave um, and the water level, like there's some water in the mine and the level is rising and the miners realize if they don't do anything, they're going to die. So one the first miner like tries to get out of the mine and he's a really big guy and he gets stuck. So like now the water is rising and all the miners realize that his thigh is stuck in the in his mine and so they're they're all about to die. So they have a bunch of dynamite with them because they're miners, um, and they realize that what they can do is they can set off the dynamite, blowing up this man who's blocking the hole of the mine and they all can escape. So, um, so- This is a,
0: a, this is not a story, this is a philosophical thought That makes you feel (laughs) a little bit better about it. Okay, Um, yeah. yeah.
2: So, in one sense, you might say that the miners blow this guy up, it's not that their end was his death, all they intended to do was blow him to bits so that they could escape. Right, his end was an unfortunate side effect. But you might you, <laughs> you might also think, well, that's some like just like philosophical sophistry. So essentially, the end itself is the same thing as the means that they've used, blowing him up. You could you might you might be able to argue, well, that's merely the means. Blowing him up was merely the means to this. To this this great end, but
0: in fact, the means of the end are like so intimately tied that it's impossible to extricate them. Uh-huh. I feel like King is saying something. Yeah, in a, I think, slightly sweeter way, but I think that <laughs> you are, no, but your example brings us back to what we're actually talking about, right? We're not talking about trees. We're talking about people and violence and lives and systematic oppression. So, like, the example of the miners and the dynamite is a little bit closer, right, to what's at stake. Than um, trees. Yes, Leah.
1: What made me understand this, in one sentence, similar to Sydney's monologue, is Morris Steinem always says that if you want laughter and joy at the end of the revolution, you've got to have laughter and joy in the, the revolution, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. and that was what brought home to me to understand this.
0: Great. Just again. You know, yeah. If you want, if you want lo- say it louder.
1: Gloria Steinem's version of this that she says a lot and still says, and I saw her say it recently, like a year ago um, in in speaking, is that if you want laughter and joy in the end of the revolution, you have to have laughter and joy in the revolution. Like, don't expect, there there ain't going to be laughter, the other way to put it is, there ain't going to be laughter and joy at the end of the revolution if you're not creating it while Mm -hmm. you're doing the revolution.
0: Great. Yeah, Toby, did you want to say one last thing?
3: I I would have liked it better. (laughs) Be it for me to
0: improve upon. We'll be one of the world's greatest orators, but give it a try. <laughs> I would have liked it better if he had said, if he
3: had ended with the means represent the seed and the end represents the tree, and the tree represents the means and the seed mm-hmm. represents mm-hmm. the end. And bring it back to the cycle.
0: Fair, fair. <laughs> uh, okay, the last thing that I want to say about this before we move on to Ruth Cook is I think that also... There's one way of talking about the ends of the means and saying that they have to be consistent the whole way through because you're perpetuating a cycle of violence and 10 years later it's going to be violent again. But another way to think about it, and this um, I think might be a little bit closer to home given when um, Dr. King passed and how he passed, is you can never be sure that you are going to achieve your ends. The ends only justify the means post facto. After you've gotten to the ends, then you could say all of the things that we did to get there are retroactively okay, because look, equality. But what if you die before that happens? Then all you've got is a bunch of horrible, violent, unjustified means. Right, so there's, I think, an essential, um, there's an essential pessimism in the optimism here, right? There's a there's a little bit of realism, which is, I if I have my means also be just, I don't have to worry about failure with blood on my hands. And I will have made small (coughs) strides towards truth and small strides um, towards love because that's the way that I'm operating and even if I'm not entirely successful, like it will be okay. Um, Okay, we're gonna move to Rav Cook. When Rav Cook talks about the ends and the means, Um, He's speaking in a much more, I think, explicitly religious way. And also, his boogeyman is not violence. His boogeyman is meaninglessness. Um, And his means are a little bit more neutral than um, the means that Dr. King is talking about. Okay. Um, Since Rav Cook's English is not English because his Hebrew is, not Hebrew. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will read it, and hopefully we'll be able to follow along. Okay. So at Orot HaChuvah, these are his, um, his systematic teaching about repentance. From the outset of creation, the taste of the wood of the tree was supposed to be equivalent to the taste of its fruit. It was supposed to be broccoli. And now he's moving in. <laughs> all of the means that strengthen any high collective spiritual end are supposed to be sensed with the soul's sense, with the same loftiness and pleasantness that the end itself is felt in it when we imagine it. So he's essentially saying, what the fruit and the tree being of the same substance represents is goodness the whole way through that all of the steps of the way, the roots and the bark and the branches and the boughs, all of those steps, all of the leaves, everything, taste just as sweet as what I want, which is the fruit. right? The ideal Edenic vision is I can taste the sweetness of the ends in the means. But that's not how it is, folks. The nature of the earth The straying of life and the spiritual malaise when it is enclosed in an enclosure of embodiment made it so that only the taste of the fruit, the ultimate end, the principal ideal can be felt in its pleasantness (coughs) and beauty. But the branches that carry the fruit on themselves, despite their necessity in the fruit's growth, have become thick and material and have lost their taste. Right, so there's this ideal where if it's going to be good, it feels good the whole way. But that's not reality. Reality, the embodied world, where spiritual values have to come through physical means, through material means, you feel like, ugh, I don't taste anything good in this wood. It doesn't taste anything like the apple that's coming at the end. And you feel this distance between the mechanism that supports And gives life to the fruit and the fruit itself, but really they should taste the same. They're both doing the same thing. That is the sin of the earth, on account of which the earth was cursed. Right? So he's he's looping us into midrash brishit rabbah. This is what earthliness does. This is what it is. Um, It was cursed when Adam was also cursed (coughs) for his sin, and then he says and all damage will be fixed in the end. Now I'm going to bring you the Sifra, which spoke about the end of days. Right, Rav Kook is saying it's not, it used to be great or it's going to be great, it's both. So there was in a spiritual ideal where everything tastes amazing. Then you have the real world where some of the taste has left the bark, has left the branches. But everything's going to be fixed in the end because I also have the Sifra, which shows me what it's going to look like in the end of days. Therefore, we are reliant on a clarification that days will come when the creation will return to its origin and the taste of the wood will be like the taste of the fruit. When the earth returns from its sin and the practical ways of life will not cause a block before the pleasantness of the light of the ideal, which is supported in its way through proper means, which support and bring it from potential to action. So when Rav Cook reads this Midrash about the fruit being fruit the whole way through, he has your critique and he says, if you eat the branch, if you eat that fruit, you're denying the tree its ability to grow. Right? He understands that the growth part is the hard part. And the success part is the good part. That's human. That's earthly. But he says that's not the true nature of things. The true nature of things is the way that it was at the beginning and the way that it's going to be at the end, which is fruit the whole way through. Where you taste the sweetness of your goal in every step that it takes you to accomplish it. Um, And Rev Cook doesn't say this explicitly, just one second. Um, But there is an implied... Advice here, which is when you are feeling weighed down by the means, when you're feeling like this branch tastes disgusting, what you should do is take a little apple butter and spread it on that branch, right? You got to reach back into the ends and have it penetrate back into the means so that every step that you take has that little bit of sweetness because you're keeping your goal in your sight. I think the best, you know, literally work a day uh, expression of this is if you're a lawyer and you're working 12, 15, 18 hour days, you put a picture of your family on your desk, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't be able to get through those 16 hour days, but you're repeating to yourself, this is day school tuition for Bobby, right? And I've got to do this because my goal is not this merger and acquisition, right? My goal is my family. That's what I care about. That's what I'm doing all of this for. And if you have that ability to tap into the goal, you can end up sweetening the process. You realize that I can't get that end without these means, then the means also take on that meaning. And instead of going to work, you're going to family enrichment procedure, right? And that then casts a spiritual, meaningful um, taste or a light onto all of the process That it takes to get there. Yeah, Richard.
3: If I'm reading this correctly, maybe not. If King and Cook were in conversation together, well, Cook might say to King, you know, what you're saying is very nice, but the reality is you're not going to have tree and fruit working until we have Mashiach. So in the meantime, you need violence to get to your good fruitful end, and then when Mashiach comes, it'll all work out. So is he contradicting King here?
0: I will say it's a 50% contradiction. You are 100% right that you're reading King, right? You're reading Cook, right? They're not, <coughs> there's a question, does the ends justify the means? And both of them have this image of the ends are preexistent in the means, right? But what that means for Martin Luther King is you can't use these bad means to get the good ends. It doesn't work. And Rev. Cook is saying, Well, look at it from the other side. If I have these good ends, it must be that the means were also good, right? So if you are looking at the ends as what's coming and you're focusing on the means, you can't get a good end from bad means. You can't. They both agree. This is the part. I'm really glad that you brought this up. This is the part that you got to sink in. They both agree that good ends don't come from bad means. So then you have to ask yourself if I achieve my ends then it turns out that all those means weren't bad because you can't get a bad you can't get a good end with bad means so it must have been that those means were all good. And when you're trying to plan it out and you know that the means are bad and you're trying to get a good end you can't use those means because you know that you can't use bad means to a good end. So how do you like resolve this contradiction? They're both saying the exact same thing and coming to opposite conclusions, right? The 50% difference is all the difference because Rav Cook is talking about things that are neutral or he's talking about, which for him isn't neutral, but for us might be neutral or positive, secular life in Israel. Right, he's saying you're going to need to have these people that aren't invested or are doing this for spiritual goals, but they end up getting us to the spiritual ends. So it must be in a kind of, you know, kind of patronizing and not particularly loved by secular Jews <laughs> vision of the world. <laughs> yeah. um, all of this all of the secular or not explicitly religious work that went into it must have actually been religious in its core because, look, it got me to this amazing, like, life in Eretz okay? I don't think that Cook would say you can do something that you know is wrong in order to get to this good means, it's good to get to this good ends, but it's not impossible, right, and we know that the followers of Rav Cook's son are much more violent than Rev Cook himself, and they've taken right, a lot of his teachings to legitimate violence in a way that I think Rev. Cook would have been like, I don't know, I wasn't planning on that. Um, so it's a very good critique. I am trying to neutralize it by talking about neutral versus bad. But you could take a different approach than me and just say, we have a machloket 100% of the way through, they both agree that you can't get a good end with a bad means, so you either have to redefine your end or redefine your means. Yeah, that's right. Um, Leah, and then I forgot your first name. Eric. Eric. Is it yeah. possible that
1: Robert and Robin painter also uh, agree in that in the sense that they both don't know what the end is going to be? Right? They—they they are. I think are they both. Like Rob Cook, using that example that you were using about Eretz Israel, he like is saying, "I see the end here," but in this, isn't he possibly he's talking about like the end, the end, as is Reverend King, and neither of them know what that is going to be. In our uh, rightly as
0: good, there is some sort of messianic hippy dippy component for both of them, and with Ralph Cook, it's a little bit stronger. Yeah, right. There's going to be a tikkun. Okay. Of course, in the end, it'll be like the Sifra. Okay. Like, he's sort of betting on that. Um, but I, but what, I, what I think is very interesting about this Mahloket is that in our lives, they can actually both work together. Right? Because if you, you can learn to get the sweetness into the means from the ends at the same time as you're unwilling to say, I'm willing to do anything to get my goal. Um, which I think is interesting that you have these two, in some senses... Incompatible philosophical arguments that you can put together and live a very happy life, um, and sort of use the best of both. Yes, Eric. I don't
1: know if I see it. I, uh, I would like to see Rob the way you're seeing him, but I, I'm, I'm leaning towards him saying, "Well, we look in the real world that we have today is unfortunate because we are at sin. So we're not in the. We're not in the. Uh, in the messiah, we're not in the." Uh, idyllic times. We will be in the future when Messiah comes, but now we're in this real world. In this real world there's, there's a disconnect between the means and the ends. And if you're telling me that he's saying it in the context of sort of capturing the uh, secularist Zionists we view as evil, I mean we don't, but he does. He doesn't but, view uh, them as evil. He, he
0: views them. them as not being fully aware of the holiness that they are perpetrating which is definitely not the same as evil. Maybe benighted, but definitely not evil.
1: But yeah. their secularism itself, he must view, he must view them as... He
0: evil. views sinning as bad. Right. He has a very robust love the sinner, hate the sin approach.
1: Right.
0: Right. Um, and he understands a kind of instrumentality um right. that he
1: a pro means justify the ends guy that's the he has to Yeah,
0: correct. right he say he's he's basically willing to say if this is all instrumental and i keep it as understood as being instrumental it'll all be fine yeah um we have about 10 minutes left so we're going to move on cuz we've got other interesting things to see not too many we're doing great on pace but i didn't want us to run out of time okay um, so I wanted to bring you this Tosefta. Um, more for the Yerushalmi that quotes it, but still, we're going to do a good thorough job. We're going to learn this Tosefta. Um, Mandy, do you want to read for us? Sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar Ben Yaakov said, what does the verse teach in say? one who steals and blesses spurns God? They, construct, they constructed a parable. To what is this matter similar? to one who stole a a se'ah of wheat ground baked and separated challah from it and fed his children. How could he bless? This one doesn't bless, rather he spurns. On this it says, one who steals and
3: blesses spurns God.
0: Okay, Right. so we have this image of this guy, so from. He makes sure to steal all of this stuff so that he could make challah. What a from guy, right? And so the pasuk says, uh, no, right, he should not be making a blessing on this ill-gotten bread. That's actually something that God would find totally repulsive, okay? Um, it's actually a very clever proof text because in, um, because the word botseah, which, mean which means to steal, also means to break, and it's the term that you use for breaking bread. So it's a very, very clever proof text. Okay. Now the Yerushal Michala does not ignore this um, chala-based proof text. Okay. Um, It is taught, it is forbidden to bless on stolen matzah. So I can't make either hamotzi or hamotzi matzah. It's unclear on this stolen matzah. Rabbi Hoshaya said, of course, this is in keeping with the one who steals and blesses, spurns God. I understand why I can't make a blessing on this bread. But Rabbi Yonah says, this is said in the beginning, but in the end, doesn't he owe him money? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this gets to um, a little, you have to know a little bit of uh, the laws of theft. But essentially, if I rob you of your wheat, um, I got to give you back your wheat, the actual wheat itself. But what if uh, I took the wheat and I made it into muffins? I don't have to give you back the muffins. I have to give you back the value of the wheat. So until I transform it, I have to give you back the actual object. Once I transform it, I get to keep the wheat, and I only owe you the value. So Rabbi, so Rabbi Yonah said, well, once he has either eaten the bread or made the bread, something that has to do with like a full transformation of the thing that he stole. Right? If it's that he stole bread, then it's after he ate it. And if it's that he stole wheat, it's after he made bread with it. But regardless, right? I can't make a pre-bracha, but afterwards, I don't owe you the wheat anymore. I only owe you the money. I'll pay you the money. Like, that's fine. And then I can make a blessing. Okay. And then Rabbi Yonah, a different Rabbi Yonah, a little bit confusing. Rabbi Yonah II says, an cannot be a mitzvah. I'm sorry. No, even if you totally digest this wheat, it's an entirely different form. You can't do some sort of transubstantiation, right, and turn this bread into something you can do a mitzvah with. No deal. And then Rabbi Yossi says, and this, I love this so much, a mitzvah cannot be an avera. He says, "This is, I think, a very subtle but very important point." He says, "You've got two factors fighting against each other: your obligation to make a blessing after you've eaten, and your sin that you have done in stealing this bread." I, Rabbi Yosi, do not want to say that. Avera power is stronger than mitzvah power. You want to say to me, once you've done an Avera with it, it's tainted forever? I want to say to you, I can redeem things, right, that have been sinned with. And you can sort of see, right, Rav Cook and the Reverend King sort of living together in this conversation. Do I want to be able to say that the bracha capacity is stronger? Than the Avera? Or do I want to say that an Aveira can never, le- can never take me to a mitzvah? Um, and what's so fascinating is then Rabbi Hila says these are the mitzvot, Elaha mitzvot. Um, if you do them as they are commanded, they are mitzvot, and if not, they are not mitzvot. And you can read this as supporting either Rabbi Yonah or Rabbi Yossi. It's amazing. Right, he's like, I want to just stay neutral. All I care about is that mitzvot are done in the right way. Mm-hmm. That might mean that technically you're okay because you've got to pay back the money and not the wheat. Or it might mean that, was that a mitzvah way to get the challah, to steal the wheat first? That's not right. So You can actually read Rabbi Hila as going both ways. Okay. Um, we only have five more minutes, so we've got to keep on going. I'm sure you all have interesting things to say and important questions to ask. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, the Gemara in Brachot says, our rabbis teach, it is forbidden for a person to get benefit from this world without a bracha. And anyone who benefits from this world without a bracha misappropriates temple property. I can't, this is God's world. This is, the whole world is God's temple. If I don't recognize that first, if I don't make a bracha on this food before I eat it, I'm stealing it, Okay. Um, And the reason why I wanted to bring in this Gemara is I think that what it kind of gets to is before you're about to launch into the bad means, you have to say to yourself, no, a bad means cannot lead to a good end, and you need to stop yourself from perpetuating the violence from stealing. But then after it's already done, are you going to make it worse by pretending that no good came out of what you did? Are you going to not acknowledge what you've achieved? Right? So I think that there's, that the lens of tshuva right, is really what Rav Cook is talking about. Remember, that's where the text came from. It came from Orod HaTshuva. He's not saying a great way for you to set up the world, ideally, is for you to screw up. But he's saying once you've screwed up and you've gotten somewhere, can you look back at what you've done and sanctify it in any way? Can you learn, can you grow from something that is a bad branch? And he'll say empirically yes. The fruit that you are eating can grow from a bad branch. Mm-hmm. And you can, only, you can only make that declaration after the fact. You can't plant a sin and say it's okay. But once you've sinned and you're in the process of doing chuva, can you see that there's been something good that came out of this difficult and non ideal process? But Cook would say yes and that there's maybe an obligation for you to look at it that way. Um, the last text that I want to see, I love it so much. It totally turns this whole thing on its head. Um, so we're on the very last source. And this is the section of Sikhar Tadik where he is talking about um, the opening of Masekar Braho. I think it's very interesting that there is like a nice intertextual play between the beginning of the Torah with Breshi and the beginning of Torah Shebaal Peh, the beginning of the Gemara with Brachot. And Reptoto sort of brings them together, I think, in a very nice way. And the preoccupation of the first chapter of Brachot is the Shema. And it's obsessed with night and day, day and night. That's like the theme. When does night really start? When does day really start? That's the question. Um, And he says, we learn from the creation of the world that in everything, the night precedes the day. Vayi erev, Vayi boker, Yom evening, morning, day one. For in everything, the absence precedes existence. When I sit in the darkness, I will know, here's quoting a when I sit in the darkness, I will know that afterwards, God is a light to me. Because all of a person's life is composed of times of darkness and light, night and day. Okay, so the natural way of the world is, it's tough, it gets better, it's tough, it gets better, it's tough, it gets better. Um, Only that night is prior, because the peel precedes the fruit. So you have to go through the bitter rind before you get to the yummy fruit inside with the exception of the holies it's always the case the night precedes day everywhere in the world except for the temple when you are counting days in the temple you count days morning evening morning evening so there are certain sacrifices that can only be eaten until you know one or two days have passed those days are calculated morning first so he says there's a there's an there's a Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's an experience of the world that is normal, that is not sacred, and that is night, day, night, day. But there's a whole other way of looking at the world in the realm of the sacred, in the Sifra world when Mashiach has come, right? That is day, night, day, night. Because for one who has already entered the holy, the day is prior, like one who is standing inside the fruit. For him the fruit precedes the peel um, and the reason aside from the fact that this is very cute I think the reason why this is so important is that the whole conversation about the fruit and the tree and wanting the fruit is all about from the perspective of the person who's going to eat the fruit but if you were to ask the fruit what's better for you you want to be a broccoli that's entirely edible or do you want to have a root system that human beings can't touch they would say human beings can't touch please right and we look at the peel as an impediment to getting at the fruit. But that's not the way the fruit thinks about it. The fruit thinks about it, I've got these seeds. And they need to be protected by the flesh and by the peel. For them, the peel is right? It's an obstruction to us, because we want to attack the fruit. But the fruit needs that obstruction. The fruit actually feels protected um, by the peel that we find to be so um, difficult to get through. I want to stop here. Thank you very
3: much.